Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the program grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to History Hack. I'm Kit Chapman. I'm joined today by the wonderful Bethany Moore. And we're going to talk about one of the greatest polymaths in history. Beth, who is our guest today? Well, hi, Kit. It's nice to be with you. I was just thinking we've never actually done one of these together, have we? Um, This is our first pairing, yeah. It is, it is, which is a shame because I think we have a great time, don't we? (laughs) Um, So our guest today is Rose, right, Rose Reglia. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Rose (laughs) is a writer, journalist and marketing consultant based in Cardiff. Uh, Her work has been published in a number of publications, including GQ, La Republica, Yahoo and WI Life, which is the magazine for the Women's Institute. And she's here today to talk to us about her book, The Real Leonardo da Vinci. So, Rose, thank you. Welcome to History Hack. Thank you so much for having me, guys. That's great. Thank you. Wonderful. So, Leonardo da Vinci, everyone knows the name. But actually sitting and thinking about it, I personally did realise, and I know that the questions have been formulated in a way that, um, you know, we know about Mona Lisa and so on. But I realised, actually, that I don't know much about him other than Mona Lisa. He likes to invent things. Um, he has a turtle named after him, which Kit likes. <laughs> yeah. Kit's got a turtle as well. Um, but it, that I really think that that's going to be it for not just myself, but for a lot of our listeners as well. So let's, you know, give him the full breakdown, start right at the beginning. Where did he come from and what do we know about his early years? Yeah. So. Um... What we know about his early years, he was, he basically um, grew up in a little place called Vinci, but he was actually born in Anchiano, which was quite uh, close to um, this Vinci city in Tuscany. Um, He was um, a very interesting, inquisitive child, very smart, and uh, was raised by the paternal side of the family. 
mostly because um, Leonardo da Vinci was born out of wedlock. So his, um, his mom and his dad were not together. His dad was from uh, a very wealthy uh, family in Italy. Um, he had a great, um, excellent legal career. Um, and his mom was a servant. So he was raised by um, his, pater his paternal side because his mom went and married again and went to have other children. And uh, we need to understand that this really had some kind of effect on Leonardo. It really, really um, had influenced and impacted his life. Um, he grew really close uh, to his grandfather and his uncle. Um, he was not very close to his dad, uh, mostly because he kind of uh, resented him a little bit. Um, but he grew up in Vinci, and uh, I think that's what really, really shaped him in so many ways. You need to have this kind of like this image of Vinci and Tuscany, uh, so much greens, so much to discover for a young child. You really kind of like, um, um, sort of like made, made sure that to, um, to have an impact on his mind, his inquisitive mind. So he just loved to explore, to discover, and that, um, and that, that was really important to him. So um, that's how he was raised in, in nature, uh, looking at things, um, trying to find out a bit more about, about things, how they work, and um, yeah, and uh, yeah, that's how it started, really. And he was born in, in the middle of the 15th century, wasn't he? Yeah, so he was about, yeah, more, more than five, more than 500 years ago. So, yeah, quite a long time ago. So when you mentioned that he's into everything and obviously he is yeah. undoubtedly a genius. He did a whole host of different things, wore a lot of different hats. Um, what was his first passion? What did he initially start doing so I would, I would definitely say that um, his first, it's really his first heart was explorer. He wanted to explore the truth. He wanted to have a look at the world and find out more about it. So I would definitely say that that was the first, the first heart for him. A very um, second close was painter. Obviously, he started as a painter. Um, by the time that he was about twelve. His father realized that he had to do something about him. He was he could not be left on his on his own. He had to have some sort of occupation, a job, and um, it was it was evidence that Leonardo uh, was quite good at painting, incredibly good. He never received any sort of education about it, but um, he kind of like um, yeah, he, he was extremely extremely talented. So there was this um, workshop in Florence, um, there's a great master called uh, um, Verrocchio. And um, Verrocchio was so taken by Leonardo's work that he decided to have him on board. And essentially that, me that meant that Leonardo became an apprentice with Verrocchio and uh, he started his career. So he was, you know, food and uh, accommodation was provided. He was not going to be paid, but he was just going to stay there and learn, uh, and learn this job this new kind of like painting job. It was great for so many ways. Uh, it was sort of like love at first sight between the two, Verrocchio's master and Leonardo. But at the same time, um, unfortunately, um, Verrocchio was not as good as Leonardo when he came to painting. And um, he made a mistake. Uh, well, it was not a mistake. It was common practice for masters to ask their students to contribute 
to the painting. And he made the mistake of asking Leonardo to add an angel to, um, to his painting, the baptism of Christ, the big, huge, amazing painting. But Leonardo's angel was so good, so perfect, that uh, apparently Verrocchio never picked up a brush again. So he was so upset about Leonardo's talent that he never painted again. It, it was one of those literal, I'm going to end this man's career moments then. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, it was not like, it was not something that he wanted to do, obviously. But, you know, Leonardo was a child. Like, he was in his... Like, how old was Leonardo? He was about, like a teenager. Mm. So he was, he was really good. And, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, that, that was intense. <laughs> especially for Verrocchio, but obviously, like, you know, we will never know whether that, that's true or not. Like, you know, it's legend says that never, never um, picked up a brush again. So. It's a very strange education, though, because in the Renaissance, we obviously see sort of, you know, Raphael famously had all these sort of students and things like that. Typically, it was an apprenticeship kind of relationship to become a painter. Mm. You know, him coming in essentially with no training whatsoever and just mm. this natural gift. Mm. Well, he couldn't, he couldn't really have any, any kind of training anyway, because obviously, like, the fact that he was, like, born out of wedlock, he was never going to become um, a notary like his dad. He was never going to, like, embrace a legal career. He could never do that because he was not, he was not, um, it was not part of his family officially. So um, he had to find a profession. And um, he was extremely talented. He liked to have a look at the world, explore the world, kind of like understand a bit more in a way that, um, you know, in a very scientific way um, rather than um, creative. Um, and yeah, he was also extremely gifted. So, mm. you know. Obviously that's the start of his painting career mm. and that is what we most know him for. Yeah. Um, you've obviously just given us a, a description there about how that starts to come about. And as you say, you know, really, from a very young age, it's more than just about the Mona Lisa, isn't it? It's more than just that iconic painting. There's far more to his repertoire, isn't there? Absolutely. Like, there are, um, there are so many famous paintings, um, but obviously they're like, like, most of them are like unfinished mm. and uh, we will never find out a bit more about them because they're like, Still, they're like in sketches, forms, um, in his diaries, in his journals. Um, but absolutely, there are like so many, like the lady with Edmund or, you know, the Last Supper, which is uh, just as iconic as the Mona Lisa. And so many portraits as well. He loved, like his favourite, favourite hobby was to follow people in the street. And if they had something strange, you know, something weird about, their attitude, uh, or even like, you know, their facial expression. He would just follow them in the street and, you know, take a sketch and just like, just, yeah, just really, he was really interested in people. He was really interested in, uh, in how human they were. And um, yeah, for example, like, you know, we have one of his early, like one of his very first paintings. I think he was like uh, in initiation uh, with the Virgin Mary. It was so human. Despite, you know, we have this iconic figures, the Virgin Mary and the angel Gabriel. And they're both like, especially the Virgin Mary, they're like so human. She's painted as she's reading a book and she's flicking through the pages. And 
you know, the angel arrives and it kind of like bothers her in a way, you know, she, you have this, you have this sense of like human nature that was so important to him. And obviously in that painting, a very, very big um, element is the nature as well. He was so interested in nature and finding out more about it. And, you know, there are like so many theories about his um, sort of um, interest and um, knowledge about um, evolution as well. So, yeah, he was, um, he was quite the character, wasn't he? <laughs> he absolutely was. And he was also an architect as well. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, he was like, in terms of like architecture, it was mostly uh, on a sort some on, on a kind of like drawing kind of basis. So we do have different sketches and drawings of him, kind of of the um, cathedrals, of the domes, of the bridges, and uh, um, and it was particularly interested in the in building a perfect city. So we need to have a think about, and we need to realize that Leonardo so. Something that we are now quite familiar with, you know, he saw the plague, the big plague in Milan. So he was kind of like so upset and worried about it that he started to really, really have a think about cities. And he was an, an architect in a sense, but he was also one of the first town planners we have had. And he kind of like really wanted to uh, build a city that was, first of all, had to be vertical and with a series of staircases and just to make sure to avoid the proximity of one, you know, one house to another and kind of like to make sure to help people, you know, if uh, another plague would have happened in the future, which it did. <laughs> but um, yeah, so he, he was incredibly um, smart and uh, sort of like scientific in a way in the way he, he approached different things, including architectures or town planning or anything else. Yeah. yeah. And he also really actually, he worked with, he was influenced by people like Brunelleschi, which was a big, big architect for different things, including like a cathedral so in, um, <clears throat> in Florence. Yeah. And I mean, he really is, um, um, a jack of all trades isn't he he can do everything yeah. because he also has does work as an anatomist as well doesn't he and mm -hmm. historically for my me personally I'm not a, a biologist or or anything but I would not think that 15th 16th century renaissance Italy is a place where a series of really important medical advancements are are taking place but he really helps us understand the human body I mean as I said it's not a area of, of an area of history I know I just saw Kit's face there it's not something I know much about at all but it's not something like I, I think of medical advancements and my brain immediately goes to the first world war because that's my wheelhouse um, yeah. no 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 yeah that makes sense yeah. um it's just but, like obviously like the renaissance was such a big time in history wasn't it it was and it kind of like had like different um changes and influences and uh, he was there he really showed up he was like you know that the renaissance man you know par excellence he was brilliant and his favorite hobby was to have a look at dead bodies and uh, open them up and find out more about it and find out about what was going on inside and uh, he loved it 
And there wasn't anything, um, you know, um, creepy or strange about it. He was a scientist. He had to understand what was going on in, in the body, what was going and why we, we were the way we were. So there was a very uh, scientific purpose about it. And um, yeah, he was a man of science. And many people obviously see him as this creative, uh, quirky person, but he really, really was a man of science. And uh, he was one of the first people to actually realize that the heart has four chambers rather than two. So he did something important. He did something, um, something good in his studies. Um, you know, like he, I think, like the first, um, the first person he actually, um, he actually had a look at was like a one hundred year old man, and uh, he had died of natural causes, and he must have thought, oh, he's perfect. <laughs> I really want to have a look inside and see what was going on. Why did he live so long? So, yeah. and of course, he was also an inventor as well. I mean, we've obviously got things like the Codex, for example, which comes up with all kinds of wonderful ideas. How far ahead was he thinking? And did any of the inventions that he actually came up with catch on in the Renaissance? Incredibly so. Like, you know, he was, he was brilliant. He had, he, he had sketches about every single thing. Um, you know, the flying machine or the parachute or the, um, you know, the, he really loved to work with colours and the, the kind of like, um, and he he really studied incredibly hard and he spent so much time on this sort of, uh, um, you know, um, inventions. And uh, it worked really well um, in terms of like, obviously like everything we see today has been influenced by Leonardo. So we, 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 don't, we don't quite realize that, but it has. Um, there was also something a bit, um, a bit peculiar about the way he kind of like approached experiments and sketches like that. He never actually um, tested them all. <laughs> So when I actually interviewed um, one of the director, um, Jesus Cassis Lambert for the Io um, Leonardo movie, he actually told me, Rose, I tried some of his experiments. They don't work. I don't think he tried them. <laughs> so that was quite funny. And, uh, and it's kind of like, you know, the way I think Leonardo was, he wanted to try every single thing. He wanted to write every single thing. He probably didn't have the time to actually test every single thing yeah he seems such a, a man who knows how to how to do everything it's really quite astounding and he obviously seems to be the kind of person that we all know them I'm one of them myself um you regularly overcommit to lots of things like you get lots of people wanting your time and and your help and so on and then you realize actually I've only I've only done half of the work on half of them um, and I imagine he feels like that kind of man who ends up in that kind of position. He can't. Did, does he finish everything he started? Is there anything that he, he quite famously has has to abandon or that we still have today? I know, as you said, some of his drawings and his paintings that are half finished. Yeah, he, I, I like to think that he was the first freelancer. So he was like, he yeah. was kind of like, he loved to overcommit. I am the same. Uh, I know many people, you know, he was very, very creative and uh, very active in, in that sense. Um, yeah, like the, there are several, like, you know, most, like I would probably say 80% of his works is, are, is half finished. 
Um, I do have um, some um, interesting examples. One is, uh, uh, well, I, I really like these examples. One is the big equestrian uh, sculpture he had to do for Ludovico Sforza while he was uh, at the Sforza's court. And uh, he never actually started that, despite different sketches and different testing and the fact that uh, he created um, a sample of the sculpture in, in wood. So it, it was there, but he never actually uh, started the bronze sculpture. And uh, this is very important because this was the cause of extensive, extensive mockery from his, his arch nemesis, uh, Michelangelo. So Michelangelo used to like, you know, be you know, kind of like make fun of him. He was like, well, so where's this big sculpture that, you, that, that we're all waiting for? Where is it? And uh, yeah, so that kind of like fuel that, um, that uh, level of, um, you know, antagonism between the two. Um, and another, another example is the big, uh, magnificent uh, battle of Anghiari that was never, ne well, I'm going to say it was never completed, but he never started that as well. He was supposed to, to paint this big battle on the, um, on the walls of um, the palace of the Signoria in um, Florence never started that because he was testing some kind of new colors and pigments and it never worked. It didn't really work out the way he wanted that to. And he got so upset <laughs> that he never even started that. So that's, uh, that's quite uh, interesting. One interesting fact about that though, is that um, years later, biographer and painter uh, Giorgio Vasari was asked, was asked to paint a similar uh, battle on those same word, on this on those same walls, and um, he kind of like what he did. Um, apparently, some people believe that there were still some sketches of Leonardo's previous battle. So, in order to protect that, um, it is believed that Giorgio Vasari placed a panel between uh, Leonardo's sketches and this new and this new battle in order to conceal and protect Leonardo's work. Obviously, we will never know that. Uh, there are some kind of like elements in Giorgio's, in Giorgio Vasari's uh, painting that might suggest that there's something more, uh, but, you know, we will never know that. That would be brilliant. I would love to find that out. I would love to see uh, Leonardo's sketches of that battle. Mm. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm so glad you mentioned the, uh, the giant horse as well for the Duke of Milan because, <laughs> I mean, his plans was, was it a, an eight meter tall horse? Oh, it, yeah, it would have been magnificent. Obviously quite ambitious, absolutely. <laughs> slightly, <laughs> slightly ambitious, but you know, he, he had like the best ideas. And uh, obviously you need, you need to understand that, you know, there are like, we are in the Renaissance. There are like different painters. They're all brilliant. We have Michelangelo. Michelangelo is amazing. So they obviously hate each other. They kind of like have to compete for the favors of all these patrons and all, of all these like big, big families in Italy. So they are, they are going to fight. They're not going to like each other. It's all about the money. It's about prestige. It's about having the best spots ever. And yeah. So um, maybe yeah. they should have just got some pizza, done some martial arts, and they would have been able to live. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't know about the sort of this sort of beef he had with Michelangelo because we never really think of Da Vinci as as a human. I mean, he was. He was a person. He had emotions. He had a character. So what do we know about that side of Leonardo da Vinci? What, what was his personal life like? So um, in terms of like family stuff, we know that he was not very close to his mum, not very close to his brothers, um, kind of close with his dad, but not, uh, there wasn't much um, in terms of like any kind of like paternal relationship. Um, but um, he had like, he was gay. Uh, and he had like one uh, of his, um, he had a couple of relationships. Uh, one was with Salai, who was his friend, his apprentice, his servant, he was everything for him. Um, and another one was painter Francesco Amelzi, who was also an apprentice. And uh, those, uh, we believe, are the best and uh, the biggest loves of his, of his life. Uh, so they spent or basically all their life together, uh, Salai and Melzi were the ones with him. Um, just, they, they stay with him until the very end. They went, so Melzi stay with him in France as well. So basically until the very end. Uh, very different personalities as well. Um, Salai was more of, a, of the commercial kinds of person. He was the one to actually sell the Mona Lisa in the end. So, you know, he was, he was a very... Um, commercial kind of person he was really interested in the fine in the financial aspect and uh, um, Melzi was the sensitive kind he was the painter and uh, close to Leonardo the most I believe in a sudden flash it all comes clear it's a eureka moment an epiphany hi I'm Marcus Smith host of the constant wonder podcast the world offers marvel meaning and mystery around every single corner in nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. And he's obviously, we think about, as you said, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, so he's, we're in that sort of, of time period. And you know, what I do know about Renaissance Italy, it's not very much at all. But what I do know is the big names, the big family names and how, 
Leonardo then interacted with those families. So the Medici, the Borgias, the Sforzas. How does he interact with each of those families? Because, you know, there's obviously then going to be rivalries between those families as well. Um, how does he manoeuvre, I suppose, dealing with these big names in, in the Italian history? He tried to manoeuvre them. <laughs> I don't think he succeeded. Um, the thing is that obviously, like, you know, we have this um, strange relationship. So we have the patron and we have the artist and the... Um, and the patron kind of like pays the artist to make sure he produced everything, everything they want. It can be, uh, you know, paintings, it can be sculpture, it can be war machines, like, you know, with the borders or with the sporters. It can be um, anything they want. So um, it's a very challenging relationship. And it kind of like gets a bit more challenging when you have someone like Leonardo who says, I'm definitely going to do that. I'm definitely going to do that. Of course, you know, I'm definitely going to meet this deadline. That's absolutely something that I would do. And he never does. He never actually delivers uh, unless forced. Um, so it's a very challenging relationship. I think personally that uh, he was not enough of a painter uh, to be loved by the Medici. Not because he wasn't good, he was brilliant, but he didn't really uh, believe, he didn't really see himself as a painter. It was more of a of someone who um, you know an explorer, a scientist, you know. Uh, but a painting, like a painting, was it was not it was not good enough for him. Mm. Um, and that's actually very interesting. When he actually goes to the sporters, he writes them a letter, and he kind of like lists all the things that he that he could do and that he would like to do. And at the very end of this letter, after you know science and uh, studies and um, kind of like you know war machines and after every single thing he says well actually I can paint a little as well so painting was not something that was really of interest to him much um the sports and the media and and the board just obviously you know it's um they everyone wanted something from him from him that was not what he desired he was not a war man who was not very um, happy to be with the borders in the end. He could not really um, give his contribution to build war machines and just uh, just after witnessing what they did uh, to the human to the human race and to the human beings. He was a he was someone who was really interested in humans. He was someone who never like you know he was a vegetarian. He was like someone. He was a very kind soul. He would never. Uh, he didn't like that that part one bit. So um, yeah, he, very, he had very challenging relationships with with all of them. Um, yeah, I think so. I think it was very challenging for him. It sounds like a difficult kind of relationship. Um, but we're talking about the real Leonardo da Vinci here. That's the name of the book. And so let's dive into some of his quirks and his personality. Um, was he a vegetarian? Uh, he was a singer, a fashion victim, apparently. Yeah, he was all of those things. He was like, um, <clears throat> he he was a very, very quirky kind of person. Um, he liked vibrant colours. He liked, apparently liked to dress up quite uh, vibrantly with orange and red. And uh, um, he was, uh, he loved music. Um, he loved to sing. 
Um, he, yeah, he was a vegetarian. Um, at the same time, uh, he was he was a very very creative person. He, he was very kind of like it's. He was not. Um, it was not what we ex- we always expect him him to be. You know, we have had this kind of image in our in our head about Leonardo being this wise calm man and I'm sure it was to some extent but he was also um, a very you know he was very alive he was a very vibrant person he loved life he had friends he was a very good friend with Botticelli he was you know he had this kind of like um, uh, thing going on with Michelangelo so there was there was there was so much life in his life in a way that we don't really understand he was not the Dumbledore of the Renaissance I mean, I'm sure I'm sure he kind of like became one, um, the wise old man, but uh, at first he wasn't. Um, and one of the things he actually did, and that's how um, you know, and that kind it kind of like explains his personality a little bit, was that he also was a wedding planner. You know, when he actually when he actually was at the sports family, and and that kind of like um, connects to what we were talking about before was asked to do some wedding planning for um the um uh, for one of their weddings so and him he was brilliant he was such a brilliant there are like there are like you know stories from the time people actually witnessed this beautiful wedding that he planned that and they say that it was absolutely wonderful so he was such a creative happy person so um yeah and anything he did uh, his personality reflected in his works and no matter what kind of works could have been wedding planning could have been architecture painting i'm always trying to imagine where he'd fit in in the 21st century i mean what, what would he end up be doing it sounds like you know i can see him sort of hanging out in soho and just having you know yeah. a whole gaggle of people around and chatting and discussing yeah. ideas doing a bit of painting a bit of wedding planning yeah. Um, sort of choreo- choreographing dances for Beyonce, maybe, or something like that. I mean, yeah. it sounds awesome. Yeah, absolutely. It's not very distant to what we are trying to do these days. Like, you know, we, I think, like, as creative people, we try to have different interests and we try to pursue these interests. And, uh, you know, I'm someone who over to mix all the time, uh, and uh, most creative people are. So, you know, it can be an interview, can be a podcast, can be a blog can be it's you know it's different but I think we're kind of like going back there in a way yeah. I imagine him having like, as you say in the 21st century him being <laughs> one of those people where their business cards is just like everything that they've done and it's like but like, painter architect wedding planner I love the fact that he was a wedding planner that really yeah that's brilliant yeah. um another strain to him is that something that I knew again a little bit about. Um, it's it's about mirror writing because he mm. seems to use this quite regularly from what I know of the period. Um, it's been used as sort of like a, a way to suggest that he might have been like a highly secretive person. Who knows? He might have been getting up to some uh, some very highly secretive things. Who knows? Um, mm. Firstly, what is mirror writing for those of um, our listeners who don't yeah. know? And why do you think he was using it? So like mirror writing is basically what the, the easiest way to explain it is when actually you actually write something and then you just look at the mirror so 
anything that you actually see from right to left. And that's the way he used to write. He used to write from right to left. So um, it's uh, interesting in a way that many people would actually think that it was because there was something secretive about it. And I would like to think that as well. At the same time, he was left-handed. So, <laughs> same. Yay, I know. I <laughs> so, it, it was kind of like easier and a much less cleaner way to express himself. So, if he, because obviously when you're left-handed, if you write from right to left, to left exactly. That's much on the hand. Yeah, exactly. You get that. So, it was, it was, it was easier and you have to think that you know we have you know we're in the middle of the renaissance you know there are not um you know the pen is not a pen it's, it's a quill so you know we have ink and it, 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 it's meant to get very messy for a left-handed person it still is today mm. so that that's that um that the explanation at the same time um yes i'd like to think that he had some kind of uh, messages and, and things he was a very smart person and um again he believed in uh, he clearly believed in, in evolution as well uh, it's something that we can see in um in um some of his paintings including the mona lisa and uh, including um uh, the madonna with child so there is like there are some elements of that and obviously even though we are in the middle of the renaissance the church is still very important and the church still has powers. And uh, if you want to work, and uh, if you want to be independent, and if you want to be a freelancer, and if you want to have money, uh, you need to kind of like compromise. So um, in a way, I believe that he wanted to be himself. And but at the same time, he wanted to kind of, uh, um, yeah, still have a personality and still have make sure that his ideas found the right platforms. And uh, yeah, middle right. It could have been an explanation for that, trying to write something and um, to make sure that basically just, uh, just be a bit, a bit secretive about his ideas. Well, keeping on with the secretive theme. So one thing that you have in the book, uh, and we can't give too much away here, as there are two interviews, uh, one with Silvano Vicente and one with Jesus Garces Lambert. Uh, what were they talking about, uh, about Da Vinci? And what do they go into without giving too much away? Yeah. Okay. So um, Silvano is a brilliant researcher. And uh, we basically mostly talk about um, Mona Lisa uh, or Lisa del Giocondo, who was the woman um, whose portrait was taken by Leonardo. Um, and we talk about where she's from, who she is, and whether we could uh, trace her, kind of like understand a bit more about her from, uh, um, you know, from, from her family history, from her descendants. So if there's like any truth, whether can we actually, you know, find out a bit more about the Mona Lisa from... Uh, um, from their descendants and uh, from, uh, from kind of like from their family. So Silvano spent some time looking at that. And that's very, very interesting. Um, so he, he has some, um, you know, his findings kind of like prove um, a few things about the Mona Lisa and her family. So that was quite, uh, quite good to have a chat with him. And um, yeah, so that was that was a very interesting part. I'm fascinated by the Mona Lisa. I I don't know whether there was like 
Lisa del Giacondo, whether she actually existed, but to have someone like Silvano to dig a bit more and to explore that side a bit more, I think was very important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to um, uh, Hesse's, we, we met because I watched his movie, Io Leonardo, and that was very interesting. There was a very um, pioneering approach to Leonardo and the kind of like, I think he sees Leonardo the way I see Leonardo as someone who's very sensitive, um, who's very human, and um, also who's very kind of like, um, for sure very smart, but um, very um, interested in absolutely everything surrounding him and uh, very inquisitive when it comes to the world and when it comes to the truth of the world as well. So um, that was really, really interesting to have a chat with him and uh, to see what, what he thought. And he was actually the one um, um, trying different um, experiments and see whether they worked or not. So um, yeah, he was, uh, it was very, very nice. And I suppose just to sort of round things off, as as you have highlighted for us today, Leonardo is a very unique man. He's a very interesting man. I suppose this question is very, um, oh, it's, uh, it's like the kind of question that you, well, perfect to finish up an interview, but it's the question that I suppose doesn't really have much of an answer in a way. How big is Leonardo's legacy like what kind of influence has does he still have on the world today can it really be measured is it a finite thing is it an infinite thing (laughs) um i don't think it can be measured i think it is every everywhere everywhere we look um there are like some traces of him and uh, this could be you know um in the arts, in architecture, um, in, sci- in science. It's it just like, he's like every, everywhere we look. Um, and, you know, one small example, I'm currently doing my PhD and um, I came across, and my PhD is in transmedia. So I came across transmedia and they actually talked about Leonardo, but they, they actually, and they talked about the, um, <laughs> the ninja turtles we were mentioning before so you know he's he's everywhere there's like it's so interesting and also like if you have a look online even when you have a look at memes of the mona lisa you know there were so many during the pandemic you know of the mona lisa being you know sad or bored or you know upset about about covid and how she was coping with covid and it's just like it's it's so it's so interesting and so funny that it's like because he's everywhere, his characters and his paintings and the characters in his paintings are kind of like, you know, are a part of us, I believe. Mm. They have become a part of us. Absolutely. And, and on a personal note, I mean, I've actually gone around the world and, and I've visited many of, of his paintings, including the Mona Lisa, including the Last Supper, um, just walking around and sort of soaking in his legacy. It's just such a huge part mm. of it. Um, Rose, your book is The Real Leonardo da Vinci. Um, tell people where they can get it, how they can get hold of it. So it's available on uh, like different websites and different bookshops, including Waterstones, uh, including the Pen and Sword uh, website, Amazon, eBay. Um, yeah, it's 
available online. Wonderful. And I'm sure as well for our listeners, we'll probably we'll get that on the History Hack bookshop as well. So there's a, a good a straight link for you there. But Rose, thank you so much for joining us today. For thank this you. Session. It, it has been absolutely fascinating. I, I've definitely learned a lot more about Leonardo da Vinci uh, today. I, I know I have certainly. But thank you uh, so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.